All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best? You got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcast. A full color Kiss history book and a Kiss surprise. Kiss Alive 2 from Casablanca Record and Filmworks. So they make this record in 1975, right? Alive comes out and it just blows the doors off of everything. It changes the, the, the story for Kiss. I mean, yeah, there were struggles to come. They had to sort of prove themselves with Destroyer. But Alive put them on the map, and and how. Right. Two years later, Alive 2 comes out. What do you think about that record? Um, I know that a lot of people will want to crucify me for this, but Alive 2 is definitely, definitely my least favorite of the Kiss Live records, including Unplugged, Millennium Concert, even so much including... The, the instant lives and is actually toward the bottom of my list for kiss records period. Hmm. Talk, talk about why, if you don't mind. Well, with kiss alive too, you were, you know, you were just talking how with alive, you had a very live feel. It felt like, you know, four guys on stage in alive too. You had things come up like two Pauls at once. Um, you had things come up like songs such as tomorrow and tonight that has never been done live is magically on Kiss Alive too. Hard Luck Woman, which was done live once or twice, I believe, but not during the recording of Kiss Alive 2, right. is magically on the record. And, uh, you know, if you, it, it doesn't feel like a live record. Right. Kiss Alive 2, to me, feels like a studio record with audience overdubs. Right. And, and, and Alive, the original Alive, more or less follows the like the, the the flow and sequence of what a kiss concert could be expected to be around that time. Now granted it's longer than any kiss concert really was on average when you went to see them in 75, right? Cuz right. average show was about an hour and 10 minutes give or take. And uh Kiss Alive has more stuff on it than you would see or hear at a at a 1975 kiss concert. But it still flows like a live performance. It starts with Deuce, it ends with Let Me Go Rock and Roll, and things more or less fit into place. Then you get to Alive 2, and I, I respect the fact that they were trying to avoid repeating themselves. Like, they didn't want Cold Gin on it again, and they didn't want Black Diamond on it again. But what you wind up with is this record that does not feel, to me, anything like going to a Kiss concert. Exactly. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't really flow the way a Kiss concert would. It doesn't make sense in a Kiss concert that you would end with a song like Tomorrow and Tonight. Right. You had stuff on there that, um, like you said, uh, Hard Luck Woman and Tomorrow and Tonight, stuff that was clearly fabricated for, for the sake of the live album. But then you ex- they excluded things like Hooligan. And Take Me. And Take Me, right. And, uh, in fact, we're going to listen to a version of Hooligan. This is from San Francisco, 1977, on the uh, early on the Love Gun tour. And it's a soundboard recording. It's a, a really terrific version. Give this a listen. Here's something from Peter Chris. Oh, 
Alive 2, to me, seems more like, whereas Alive 1 felt like a live concert, Alive 2, to me, almost seems like a place marker. Like, almost like Alive 1, to them, served as Greatest Hits Volume 1. Mm-hmm. And when they did Alive 2, it was almost <coughs> like Greatest Hits Volume 2. Yeah. Just, quote-unquote, live. Right. Um. And then also it served to give us five very good um, original tracks. Unbelievable uh, studio stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that kind of brings up uh, this issue of Alive 2, not as a live record, but uh, as a sort of a product or a package, right? I, I, I hear what you're saying about Alive 2 being sort of bottom of the list for you in terms of Kiss records and in terms of live albums. For me, I will agree that it's not their strongest live material. What I will say is that it might be the greatest KISS product. It might be the greatest KISS package that you could buy um, in terms of having bang for your buck. I could see that. Right? Especially on vinyl, especially at that time, especially for that, for that price. Um, all the stuff they packed in, they packed into that, all the stuff they crammed into there, like, oh gosh, the, the tattoos, the, the booklet, the, the amazing photo on the, uh, gatefold. Incredible. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, just, you know, quintessential, iconic, classic image. Um, the fact that it's got the four faces on the cover, it's got all four of them singing lead vocals. There's, there's, uh, songs written by every guy. And then they even throw on five uh, studio recordings. It's, in some respects, it's like, what is Kiss? This is Kiss. Right. Right. But that's not what Kiss started out as, right? Alive is what Kiss started out as. It's sort of like Alive is Kiss at its very core. It's the purest essence of Kiss distilled down to what, you know, what it really is all about. Alive, too, is what, is what Kiss was about at the height of their popularity. Right. Right. And it's what I think it would have been nice had uh, had they been able to recapture that for either a live three or four or whatever, that big giant package. But we'll get to that. Do you, when you listen to Kiss Alive 2, is there anything about it that you do enjoy? Well, I do enjoy hearing, say, Hard Luck Woman played electrically. Mm-hmm. But I would almost, you know... To me, when I hear that song, though, I don't think this is Hard Luck Woman live. I think here's an electric version of Hard Luck Woman. Definitely. It's, it, you know, it's kind of the way I look at it. Um, I do, I think I might like God of Thunder better on Alive 2 than I do on Destroyer. Huh. To me, and God of Thunder is a longtime favorite of mine. At one point, it was my favorite Kiss song. But on... On the original Destroyer record, it almost it, it plods a little too much for me. Right. It's a little too plodding, a little too um, muddy sounding. Whereas live, the guitar has a little bit more crunch to it. There's a real intensity to what they did with that song live. It had a great pace. Gene just delivered it like he was going to, you know, rip someone's heart out of their chest. Um, and then the drum solo is terrific, too. Right. Um, what about... You know, the the songs like um, Detroit Rock City, um, King of the Nighttime World, things that were so produced on the original album. It w- It's nice to hear those songs a little more stripped down. Right. But again, you know, they, there's so much production on them. Even here, it's just not the same kind of production. Right. To where I still, I don't, I, they don't feel live to me. How much of it is live? I mean, do, when you when you listen to that, what do you think actually is authentic? Um, a lot of the music, whereas you know it's a little more perfect than it sounded, you know, at the time live. The music comes off as live, but I, I would say that most, if not all, of the vocals were completely re-recorded. Right, and on the box set, they've got that, uh, you know, they got the sound check of "I Want You," and it sounds pretty much like. Uh, that's what they used as the basis for what was on the live too, right? I mean, right. They must have recorded a lot of the sound checks and used that as an opportunity to lay down tracks for this. Now, let's talk about this thing that fans know about as the Lost Alive Two, right? Um, this is a, a recording that was done in Tokyo in 1977 on the Rock and Roll Over Tour, 
and it was going to be, I think, um, before they had the idea of doing an Alive 2, I think that they were going to do a live album that was going to be, um, I don't remember exactly what the name was, I think it might have been Kiss Takes Tokyo or something like that, um, and this was going to be the follow-up to, to Kiss Alive. It was going to have material from the first three albums, plus Destroyer, plus Rock and Roll Over. Right. Um, and it was really good. It was very raw. It had had, had kind of that... Uh, it sounded more like Alive, but more of the current material, the that material that was current at that point. Um, let's listen to Take Me, okay? Because that's a song that was fresh at that moment in history, but it wasn't on Kiss Alive 2. And uh, this is a version that's from Tokyo in 1977, from what was referred to as the Lost Alive 2. This is not the same thing that ended up on You Wanted the Best, You Got the Best. This is uh, kind of the real deal here. So imagine this as your follow-up to Kiss Alive. Give it a listen. Live to it sounded like that versus what actually did come out. Would you prefer it? Absolutely. Hmm. Far, far and away. You know, I really would prefer a live two to be more live than it is okay. and more authentic sounding than it is. Um, you know, maybe it, it comes from I didn't get a live two until I already knew what they sounded like at that point. Right, me neither. So it was kind of when I heard it, it was like well, that's not what they sounded like then. Right. So, I mean, when I got Kiss Alive, up until the point to where it came out that Kiss Alive was overdubbed, I never had any suspicions. Oh, wait a minute. You know what? I take that back. I think I, okay. I think I misunderstood you. I got Kiss Alive too after I had already heard those three studio records. Right. Right. Versus Alive is something that I got 
before hearing Kiss Hotter Than Hell or Dressed to Kill. You're talking about something different. What you're talking about, I think, is that you had heard recordings of Kiss playing live in 76 and 77 before right. you got alive too. Is that right. correct? Okay. Exactly. I'd so. heard Detroit Rock City live from that era. I'd heard God of Thunder live from that era at that point. And then I get alive too. And what I'm expecting is to hear that, but more polished, more slick. Right. And what I get is basically, you know, a glorified studio album. Yeah. And very obviously so too. Yeah. I mean, probably not at that point. And, and I, I want to go ahead and qualify this. I'm not dogging Kiss Alive 2 in any way. I know there are a lot of Kiss fans, a lot of our listeners, that it's probably their favorite Alive album. And rock on. I'm glad you guys dig that. It's just, for me, it, it's not there for me. So so let's, let's dissect that for a minute, right? Because going back when we were talking about Kiss Alive, we were saying, um, you know, we're kind of contradicting ourselves here, right? Because initially right. we're saying it's okay to fudge things in the studio for the sake of creating a listener experience. Right. Why is this too much? In other words, what is it about Alive 2 that makes it uh, too over the top? Kiss Alive to me sounds like a live recording that's been touched up in the studio. It sounds like you've got a whole bunch of live with a little bit of studio thrown in. Mm -hmm. When I listen to Alive 2, it sounds like a studio record with live elements. Right. It, it sounds more studio than live to me. Okay. And therefore, it doesn't come off as authentic or even honest as a live record. Right. It comes off, you know, more as – I don't know if I want to say it comes off as if they were pulling the wool over our eyes. But it just – it doesn't have the same authenticity that Kiss Alive has. Let me throw this at, out there, and um, maybe this is part of it, Okay. On podcast number 30, I think it was, is that the one where we uh, got our asses kicked by the members of Clown? I believe so. Right. Uh, Ken did those great interviews uh, with uh, J.R. Smalling and also with Mick Campisi, right? Right. And in the interview with Mick, he talks about standing backstage with the crew, hearing Christine 16, and thinking on some level that it was over. That what Kiss had started out trying to do and what they what they were initially had ceased to exist because they were writing songs with a commercial uh, interest in mind. I don't know. See, I don't know if that, if I buy that really, because for, you know, every song like Christine 16, where I kind of see that, you know, songs like strutter and then making love kind of have that same vibe to them. Okay, so Rock and Roll Over, I think most fans would agree, is a record where it could easily kind of fit with the... It could be the fourth studio record. In other words, you could go kind of... You could almost it could be the third. You could kind of go Kiss Hotter Than Hell, Rock and Roll Over, and it would fit. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Because it's those four guys, for all intents and purposes, in a room, rocking out, doing what Kiss do best. Right. Right? Okay. But Destroyer, Love Gun... Not just the production, but the material. Well, of course, there are songs on both records that would not have been done on the first Kiss record. Something as, con you know, I don't want to say contrived because it's a great song in my top ten for sure, but a song like Detroit Rock City, which is, is mapped very methodically right, and is very spot on. But for every song like that, you have a, you know, a, a rocker with kind of the same reckless abandon they have with the first three records. And a song like I Stole Your Love. And, you know, you can't stop people from growing up either. We're really talking about the difference of a year, two years. It's, you know, it's not that much time has gone by between 1975 and 77. But there's a real difference in terms of self-awareness. Right. And, and uh, a joke you and I have made, I think, before is it, we sometimes uh, poke fun at the lyrics that Paul's been writing over the past few years. And we, you know, like the kind of self-congratulatory live to win stuff. And I'll go on record saying that, you know, Kiss didn't reach the top of the mountain by singing about reaching the top of mountains. Right. And that's no no offense to that. It, that's fine music. It, it has its place, and Paul's a good songwriter. I think what I'm talking about, though, is that by the time they got to Destroyer, they had stopped being Kiss and started singing about being Kiss. Does that make sense? 
Exactly. Okay. Oh, absolutely. A song like King of the Nighttime World, which, you know, we've recently come to find out that Kiss had a lot less involvement in the writing of than we originally had thought. But even a song like King of the Nighttime World, you know, you wouldn't really hear a lot of that on the first three records. Not that you're the king. Right. You know, or you wouldn't really hear something. You would hear a song like Strutter, which, you know, is about a specific type of lady or a song like, you know, Anything for My Baby, which is about, you know, love. But you wouldn't hear a blatant, you know, song full of sexual innuendo like Love Gun. And you know what? That is why I love Modern Day Delilah, dude. You just nailed it because, she, like, uh, uh, I know a thing or two about her. I know she'll only make you cry, right? Uh, she'll adore you and she'll floor you with her wisdom and her vision. Uh, you know, she walks by moonlight, enchanted starlight, right? These are the songs from way back where it was about how women can knock your socks off and how, you know, you, you fantasize about them, blah, blah, blah. That's what modern... Right, I know the way you made the others break, but loving me would be your first mistake. Right, kind of, yeah, kind of like right. th that kind of like, you know, wow, you've got a real power, lady. Versus the ladies call me Mr. Speed, that kind of like rap bravado, hip-hop bravado that somehow seeped into the music once they became aware that they were superstars. Right. Right, and so Kiss Alive too is a lot, is, is about that. It's like, by the by the time you reach 1977, Kiss is is about Kiss. It's not it's not uh, it's not about the streets anymore. Right. It's not about you know becoming a success. It's about being Kiss. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's fine. It, you know it, it that has its merits. I mean, certainly that was really exciting in '96. Certainly, it's really exciting when you get to see them for the first time in 2009. Right. It is right. about it's about the legacy, but the legacy sounds different from right. from the history. Well, you know, it's like I always tell people, one of my favorite things about Kiss is that they're so diverse. You know, you can have a band that has a song like Parasite and follow it up with Tomorrow. Right. And then have Hate followed by Beth. But at the same time, that is kind of part of the thing that made Kiss Alive 2 be a completely different animal from Kiss Alive 1. Is it Kiss was a completely different animal at that point. Look at the difference between those two album covers from Alive 1 to Alive 2. Right. Right? Alive 1. You've got th this band that is rocking out together on stage. To me, that's like a snapshot of them playing Nothing to Lose, right? That's right. like, you listen to that song, you look at that album cover, it's like, yeah, this is a, a unit. Alive 2, great cover, great photos, but four different guys in their own little boxes. Right. You know, and that's, that's where it's starting to maybe just before it starts to really fall apart. And sure enough, like right after that, what did they do? Four solo albums. Right. Yeah, but before they did that, they had the incredible side four of Kiss Alive too. How good right. is that? Great, great, great material. Incredible songs. On Alive Two, when did you decide to uh, make the last side when studio we ran stuff? Out of, when we ran out of live stuff. Was that it? Yeah, because when we did the first live album, we had all the material from from three albums. But when we did the second live album, we were still doing a lot of the songs in the show that were in the first live album. So we really didn't have enough songs for two complete sides. So the idea was to do three, three sides. We couldn't do four, and we didn't want to do two. And then we said, well, let's do a bunch of new songs. And even on the second live album, there were a lot of things that we did in the show. I mean, there'd be a, an hour and a half of Gene Simmons spitting blood, or 10 hours of Peter going, you know, the drum rise, bam, bam, would go up in the air. The drum rise would go up, and it would take, like, forever to do it. And it, even though it was spectacular live, when you hear his music, so we cut a lot of that stuff down, so we just left with the songs and a couple of bones. And we've got some of the unmixed audio, so early, early rough edits, I guess, of, uh, of what turned into Side 4 Kiss Alive 2. We're going to listen to Rocket Ride and Larger Than Life, and for that we're going to take a trip down to Abner's uh, Laboratory. Oh, Abner Devereaux, sure. Well, this Abner Devereaux, where can I find him? His workshop's located underneath the Sky Tower. You mean underground? Yeah, way underground. I'll just activate the elevator mechanism. You step inside.
After completing their Love Gun tour in 1977, Kiss went back into the studio with Eddie Kramer at the helm to record five new tracks for the fourth side of Alive 2. Tonight, we're going to take a listen to two early recordings of two of those songs, Larger Than Life and Rocket Ride. So without further ado, here are the early recordings. Can fight our pain inside. 
while back, our very own Ken Mills got a chance to talk to Bob Kulik, who talked to him about the making of Side 4 of Kiss Alive 2. All of a sudden, there's this concept that pops up. There's Kiss. A few years down the road, you get a call saying, hey, we could use a guitar player. Or <laughs> how did that work out? Well, they had a deadline on this live record, Kiss Live 2, and you know, Ace was like dragging his heels. And they wanted to make the point, like, look, you know, we need you to hop too. You know, do your part. You know, come on. And the guy was like, you know, didn't take it that seriously. So it was like, we're going to bring Bob in then. You know, they didn't care. He was there the day I played. It didn't matter. Really? You know, wow. So when, yeah, he was in the, you know, he was, he was in the lounge watching TV. You know, so on my way out, you know, hey, currently, how was I? The best you ever played. <laughs> That's what happened. That's the story. So there you go. So subsequent to that, you know, I, I, you know, they were my friends. I did it as a favor. You know, you can't put your name on the record. I understand. You're going to pay me, and we're friends. And you return this favor someday, I'm sure. Absolutely. And they did. They always did. Gene turned me on to Diana Ross, made sure I played on that stuff. Paul made sure I played on his record, took me out on the road, introduced me to other gigs and other people. So they always took care of me. It was never an issue where I felt like I got screwed by that. It didn't bother me because I knew at the end of the day, because they're so big, the truth will come out and I'll get the credit and it'll be to my benefit that I played along with them and played that game. Because... We all knew that, like the Beatles and people like that. Sometimes Ringo didn't play drums. Even if Paul McCartney played drums, exactly. it was not what we all thought. It was not the organic band playing. So right. It was an instance where everybody was like, wow, it's an ace, and it was an ace. You know, okay, fair enough. You know, but um, I, I, there was no bitterness for me. You know, I, I believe me. You know, they made sure that they took care of me because I took care of them. It, it had to be a kind of a mind-blowing experience. You'd walk into a record store, and there's some kid buying a live too, and you, do you ever just want to say, uh, I got to get something to tell you. <laughs> well, but yeah, I had, you know, I had other things I was doing, you know, but then oh, I yeah, had my own band with a record deal and all the stuff where I'm playing with other people. And so it's like just one of the things, just a notch on my belt, you know, it was exciting yeah. to work with Eddie Kramer. He was the producer and uh, actually a much better engineer than producer. Wow. Um, I got to tell you, Kiss Alive 2, Side 4, uh, it's some of my uh, favorite, favorite stuff in, in, in the entire Kiss catalog. It just blows my mind. The guitars are brutal sounding. I wish that their next album, Dynasty, would have followed that path because it's it's just such a kick-ass hard sound. Um, and and I gotta confess something to you, Bob. I thought it was Ace back in the day because I was like 14 year old, and I believe what 16 Magazine told me. We do have one question though. On a live two side four, was that Peter Chris on the drums? Uh, I think it's Anton Fig. Okay. Now, what makes you think that? Yeah. Well, uh, he was the one who was around at the time, and uh, uh, I think that's what I recall. I may be wrong, but I do believe that's the case. Well, it's just speculation, but it's damn interesting speculation. Hi, this is Bob Kulik. And you're listening to Podcast. Big thanks to Bob for those insights, and uh, we all wish to send our condolences to both Bob and Bruce Kulik on the loss of their father recently. So going back for a second, we were talking about uh, the lyrics changing and the vibe changing and Kiss becoming a band that was kind of starting to sing about themselves and uh, having some kind of self-awareness or self-consciousness, I don't know. Uh, to me, there's no song that epitomizes that more than Do You Love Me? And that's one of the songs that's sort of like egregiously absent from Alive 2. Um, but we have a recording from what's called The Lost Alive 2. This is from Tokyo in 1977, and here's Kiss playing Do You Love Me?
you know what my absolute favorite part of Kiss doing Do You Love Me in the old days was? What? Gene going, Do you love me? I thought you did I thought you didn't like that. I, I don't like it so much in the more like reunion era where it just sounds like me. <laughs> but in which that song of one of my favorites never needs to be played again because the chorus just sounds terrible. It got but, it, it gets old. Although I remember seeing them in ninety six play that and it was I, well, everything about that concert was magic. But Well, I mean, if they played it when I saw them live, I'd probably scream my head off and then swear I didn't like it later. But uh, in the 70s, there was this, Gene had this real attack in his voice, you know? Right. Oh, yeah. Whereas, whereas now it almost feels like he sings that way because he can't sing it any other way. Right. Whereas then it just sounds like he was staying in character. Some people don't like that. I know Ken has said that he's not a fan of what he refers to as the Cookie Monster vocals from Alive 2. I kind of like it. I think it works for that material. I wouldn't want to hear the Kiss Alive material sung that way. Right. Right? Like, watching you wouldn't work with that, I'm standing here, not, you know, like, that That wouldn't Look work. Look at you do, I'm watching you, oh, oh. Right, right, exactly. And it sort of does sound like that in that New Jersey uh, 76 yeah. show, right? But um, I guess one thing that's worth mentioning as we're, as we're wrapping up our discussion of Alive 2 is that it's not all fake. Clearly, some of that really happened on stage. Um, we're going to play an excerpt. The sound quality here is not terrific, but this is some of... Ace's solo, the Shock Me solo, from the LA Forum in 1977. These are the shows that were, you know, allegedly the the blueprint uh, or the source material for Alive 2, just like Cobo uh, uh, Hall was the source material for Kiss Alive. So here's Shock Me, the solo from Shock Me, from the LA Forum 1977. Some of this is going to sound familiar, so give it a listen. Now let's take a break from talking about the Alive Records and catch up with uh, podcast correspondent Oliver Barnes, who's our UK correspondent, who's here to tell us all about the Islington show that he attended on the Sonic Boom tour. I'm Ollie Barnes and I live in the UK on the south coast near Winchester which is about 70 miles from London. I've been a KISS fan since 1982 when a friend lent me double platinum which I thought was a pretty good start. I then bought Destroyer on sale at HMV and that pretty much sealed the deal for me. I first saw them in Stafford on the Lick It Up tour in 1983 which is the first without makeup here. On 1984 I caught them twice on the Animalized tour with Bon Jovi and they were memorable gigs. Bruce was bedded in and it was a good set list. Even Bon Jovi were good. I saw Kiss at Castle Donington Monsters of Rock Festival over here, and after that, even though I've always listened to Kiss, I kind of drifted away from them after Crazy Nights, and the 90s largely left me on the sidelines, to be honest. That was until the reunion in 1996, when I finally got the chance to see what I thought I never would, the original four on stage together. 
I saw Kiss on the first reunion tour at London's Wembley Arena watching a set of songs, not one of which was less than 16 years old, and it was magical. After that it was Psycho Circus and another great show, if not a great album. But then I drifted again, largely because the band didn't play here and, and there wasn't any new material. Until last year. Kiss played the Download Festival and Gene famously said there'd never be another Kiss album, but within 12 months they'd re-recorded and released the Kiss classics and were set to release Sonic Boom, a new studio album and a completely new European tour. Just to show that they've still got a surprise or two in the locker, they announced a club gig in London a couple of months before the tour, with only a few hundred tickets up for grabs and the smallest gig they'd done here for 20 years. I didn't fancy my chances much, but having instructed everyone with a web connection to go for it, an old mate managed to snag me one, and I was the happiest boy you can imagine. The club gig was at the O2 Academy in Islington, and uh, on the night of the gig, it was just surreal. Not much more than a, well, more than a handful, but just a few of us queuing outside waiting to get in in this tiny, tiny venue. I'm not lying when I tell you it was upstairs in the local shopping centre. We all knew we were the, the fortunate ones who'd succeeded where pretty much everybody else had failed. I spoke to one guy who travelled all the way down from Scotland just to sample the atmosphere. It was nice to see Kiss Deer is still alive and well in the UK. When I got inside, it was just incredible. I was standing in what you can only describe as a medium-sized room, with the KISS logo taking up pretty much the entire back wall. I grabbed a couple of pints and just sauntered up to the front barrier. How easy was that? After a couple of hours, bang on time, KISS walked on the stage with no intro, no pyros, no nothing. For a second or two, I didn't realise they were there until the lights came up, just to reveal all four of them in full costume and makeup, grinning like idiots. Everybody went completely crazy, and Paul and Tommy burst out laughing. Even Gene cracked a grin. And that was the intro. It seemed like they fancied a bit of a giggle, and it was certainly that. Apparently they'd got changed in the hotel and walked across the street in full costume to get to the gig. Must have been a while since they did that. I'm surprised there wasn't a massive pile-up on the main road. They opened with Modern Day Delilah, which in a 12-song set was joined just by Say Yeah from Sonic Boom. No fills, no solos, no pyros, no faff, and it struck me why this gig was going to be so important. I remember once Paul saying that a crappy band with a great show is still a crappy band. So before all the hoopla that would no doubt surround the upcoming arena tour in Europe, here was Kiss reminding the world that first and foremost, it's about the music. When it's all said and done, a musician wants to be remembered for the music, right? Not how many bombs went off. I also got a real sense of the effort they were putting into the show. I think you can kind of take it for granted or forget about it when you're watching a video screen from 100 feet away, but trust me, from six feet in front of Gene Simmons, you are in no doubt what it takes to haul ass like that for an hour and 20 at the age of 60. It's incredible they can still do the rounds at all, given the energy they put into the live shows, and in fact this one was cut short by three encores, because they were struggling after the CO2 blowers, which dispense all the confetti during rock and roll all night, left him, and me, somewhat short of puff. I found out afterwards that Paul thought he was having a heart attack until he looked at Gene and Tommy and realised they were in worse shape than him. Ironic that the only special effects of the gig nearly put them all in hospital. So 80 minutes and 12 songs later, we all left happy and content that we'd witnessed something pretty historic. I figured I could die happy after that. But wait, there was still Wembley and May to look forward to. Could it be even better? May 13th was the last date of the UK tour at Wembley Arena in London, and right at the other end of the scale from the Islington gig. Full stage show with Kiss waving farewell to a sold-out crowd in the capital. This was the first show to go on sale from the tour, so it was always going to be the most colourful in terms of who was there. Lots of people in full makeup and costumes, and the usual diehards who've made the trip from somewhere on the continent. France, Germany, and always Scandinavia are well represented at any London Kiss show, and the same was definitely true here. As the lights die, the screens play a clip from the Sonic Boom video as Kiss tower above some unfortunate, measly cityscape, and this cuts to the band heading from the dressing room towards the stage wings, which is a nice touch, and as they disappear, the video fades to black and the familiar intro rings out. We all join in with the hottest band in the world, Kiss. 
front stage curtain drops to a snare intro from Eric, and an just unfeasibly loud series of explosions and fireworks, which then reveal Gene, Paul and Tommy being lifted out from behind and then over the drum riser in a full arc to arrive stage front. This then retreats to the rear as the kiss lights fold up in front of the drums and we're into modern day Delilah, which is the new set opener. Pure kiss, pure magic. I'm in heaven and the place is going absolutely nuts. So what do you want to know? Well, they played 20 songs in around 2 hours 10, with Say Yeah and I'm an Animal making the set list from Sonic Boom. No major shocks in the main running, with Strutter the only major casualty you might have expected to hear. Cold Jim was our first chance to punch some air. Firehouse has always finished up with Gene's fire breathing. Juice took us right back to the beginning with that wonderful choreography that I'll never tire of watching. Shock Me is now the Tommy and Eric show with rocket guitars and bazookas and a chance for them to show off and for Gene and Paul to take a well-earned breather. I Love It Loud is still Gene's spotlight with fake blood and a trip up to the rafters which is still great fun to watch. Black Diamond was preceded by Paul's brief run-through of Led Zepp's Whole Lot of Love, which is always going to bring the house down on this side of the pond. The night before, Jimmy Page was in, so Paul got the chance to play it for one of his heroes. Lick It Up was cutely paired up with the Who's Won't Get Fooled Again. Another tip of the hat to Gene and Paul's British music influences. A clever move too, as Lick It Up never sounded so good as far as I'm concerned. The two surprises, I guess, were the records of Crazy Nights, which was a number two hit over here, don't forget, and the inspired God Gave Rock and Roll to You. Not a huge favourite of mine, but they played it second to last, and I think it got the second best audience response of the night. I Was Made for Loving You sent Paul off to the back of the arena to his own mini stage and a brief affair with the cheap seats until he returns triumphantly for rock and roll all night. Timeless anthem and the ultimate set closer. More of those pesky CO2 blowers, though. So if truth be told, my biggest fear was the same one I'd had when I went to see ACDC last year. Would the energy still be there? You can set off as many pyros as you like, but could they still strut their stuff? Well, Islington had allayed any real worries on that score. They were amazing at Wembley. Paul has an unbelievable command over any size of audience he always has. And Gene? Well, it's Gene, isn't it? I liked Eric and Tommy, but if I'm honest, it's because they play the songs right and they don't screw up their solos and fills. I guess that's why Gene and Paul like him too. Paul said if it's alright with us, they'll come back and see us again. Any time, fellas. I'll be front and centre every time.
And that's our show. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podkist.com. If uh, you have any suggestions, comments, or just want to talk to us, drop us a line at podkist at gmail.com. Be sure to check out James's other site, which is called zombiefaq.com. For all you white zombie fans, it's the place to be. A big thanks to Julian and all of our friends over at kissfaq.com. Big thanks to all of our pals at mykisslife.net. Keith LaRue and all the staff over at kissonline.com. They do a great job representing the hottest band in the land. If you have a Kiss-related website and want us to uh, mention it in the show notes or uh, possibly talk about it on the air, just let us know and we'll see what we can do about that. As James mentioned, be sure to check out Kiss Online for links to all the individual band members' websites. And as always, a big thanks to Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Ace Fraley, Peter Crisp, Vinnie Vincent, Bruce Kulick, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memories of the late, great Eric Carr, and the late, great Mark St. John. You are Kiss, and we are your army. Thanks for listening. Good night. Good night.